Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome to Series 6 of Helpful Social Work and I'm Jo. I'm Jerry, and throughout this series we are looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice using the Equality Act in England as a kind of a framework. Last month, we started off with revisiting the ethics and the social work role around fighting discrimination and some of the theories that support this. And this month and from now on, we'll be looking at evidence of inequality relating to a particular protected characteristic, um, which is a term in the Equality Act. And we'll be considering how social workers can challenge discrimination and uphold rights. And we're going to be starting off with age. You can find all of our podcasts from series one to five at www.helpfulsocialwork.com. Thank you very much to all the people who've recently liked us on Facebook. Facebook page has been going a bit crazy for us, um, quite a lot of of likes. And we are over 95,000 downloads now. So it's great that people are collecting, um, listening into our our back catalogue as well. And we really hope you enjoy the podcasts and you can tell us what you think either on the Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast, or by commenting on iTunes or on Twitter. Um, I'm at Effective Prac or Joe is at jfox underscore Joe. Yes, but I don't use Twitter very much. So write to Jerry. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the disclosure of you'll, honesty there. You'll find absolute <laughs> honesty on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so as Jerry said, we're starting off our look at particular characteristics by looking at age. And this, um, when I started thinking about this, uh, my head was just fizzing in a hundred different directions. Um, so I think this is going to be a really um, interesting podcast. Um, in the Equality Act, this is one of the protected characteristics, and it means that you're protected by law from discrimination. And in social work, we're called on by our code of ethics to really challenge discrimination and oppression. So we uphold rights, we tackle inequality. And this goes far beyond the letter of the law. This is actually what we're putting into action. So really, um, for us, holding in mind these protected characteristics and how we can respond to them as social workers is is really important. You know, and we're really aware um, from theory and evidence, but also from lived experience, um, from our practice wisdom, that discrimination and oppression really overlap and they have this complex and diverse impact. So we can't consider age in isolation. So what we're going to try and do in this podcast is understand the evidence around how people are discriminated against on the grounds of age. And we'll think about how this interacts with other oppressions And then lastly, we'll think about how we can respond to that as social workers. And I think as we go through the podcasts, we're going to hopefully build up an increasingly complex and nuanced picture of how social workers challenge oppression and promote equality and equity of outcomes, equality of outcomes through um, diverse responses to different people. Uh, So we're going to unpick things in each podcast um, and then probably put them back together again. Um, to kind of you know, look at the look at the delve, delve into the picture and then build that picture back up to try and get a real handle of what's happening and what what practice needs to look like. And we'll start with the definition of ageism, which is discrimination on the basis of age, especially against older people. So it does have this sense of being particularly about older age, but it actually can apply at any point in the life course. Mm. And discrimination here has a negative meaning. Um, 
so you can positively discriminate but usually when we use discrimination we mean something bad and the reason that this is significant is because those kind of assumptions and stereotyping and grouping of people by a characteristic age undermines individual dignity and our job as social workers upholding human rights is to uphold the inherent dignity of each person um, and actually the UN Convention on the Rights of Older Persons is called that which I think is quite nice because it's each person having this mm. inherent right and inherent dignity um, so yeah it's, it's what do we do our, with our personal actions with each older person but also the cultural and structural um, action that's needed to help people to thrive um, whatever their age yeah so when you start to think about ageism I mean of course it's interesting for us Jerry because you practicing in adults and me practicing in um, children's means that you know straight away I started thinking of all the different ways that um, ageism affects young people um, and in particular I was really struck with with two things one was child development um, where we expect a child to do a certain thing at a certain age and if they don't do that if they can't reach that milestone um, then there's all sorts of um, assumptions made about their ability to manage and carry on and, and achieve things in life um, and there's already been lots of conversations um, in the disability world about how it should really be stages of life rather than ages of life so that we can think about and concentrate on people's competencies and what they can do rather than thinking about what they can't do all the time against this rather arbitrary table of um of development so there was a whole range of experiences that I started to think about and when you think about how ageism operates it very quickly you you start to think about other characteristics and experiences and for me that took me back to the intersectionality framework that we've spoken about before you know that certain characteristics can be associated with negative stereotyping such as the young black man when being talked about in the context of youth justice or the young leaving care female when talking about teenage pregnancy or parenthood. You know, for older people, there's the stereo of aged combined with the um, difficulty, combined with any kind of difficulty or distress leading to an inability to change. Um, for example, oh, this is her fifth violent relationship and she's now 45. So the chances of her breaking these patterns of interactions and making safe choices around partners might but can be perceived as lower and these kind of assumptions are not always spoken out loud but they can really inform our decision making and it struck me that this can particularly happen when we use chronologies you know a social work tool that only focuses on the difficult or negative experiences that have been built up over a person's lifetime because then the combination of the person's age and the other factors that we've identified as risk indicators they can combine to create a real bias and rigidity in our decision-making around individuals. It's a really interesting balance, isn't it? Because I was also thinking about the research around the cumulative effects of ageism and discrimination and things like poverty across the life course, mm. meaning that um, I think the statistic is something like a 12-year difference in um, life expectancy between Kensington and Chelsea and Glasgow and yeah. so we do need to be really aware of of those 
circumstances in that story. But yet the story can't all be charting people's, as you've talked about, charting people's misery. There's so much and there's and there's a real strength that comes through the life course as well mm. at whatever stage you're at. Um, and it's those shorthands that are problematic, isn't it? Yeah, it's about, you know, if you have a good chronology that builds up both the strengths and the triumphs and the achievements of the person alongside the risks and the struggles, then you have this really rich picture of the person's strengths and ability alongside the things they're struggling with. And there's still that still helps you understand those those risk factors that are there. It doesn't ignore them, but it doesn't condense a person. Mm into their narrowest possible and most difficult life. I had an absolutely amazing educational experience on this when I was a newly qualified social worker in a hospital in rugby. And I went to see a woman who um, was you know, older um, and regarded medically as quite frail mm. and had had um, you know, a really difficult time. And I was there to arrange for her to go back home. And I was quite worried about her. And and she just said, I used to drive ambulances in the Blitz. I will be fine. And I was like, <laughs> OK, that has really changed my way of thinking yeah. about this. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we must see people at all ages and stages as the sum of their competency and resilience, as well as their frailty and adversity. And, and I think that that can be really narrowed by ageism, actually. That's one of the areas where... You know, we can just say this person is this age. So and I think also when we're, when we're talking about challenging oppression and discrimination, we need to be really clear that we are talking about um, working with people to overcome barriers, not trying mm. to save them. Um, mm. So there's a strength based element to that challenge as well. Um, it Absolutely. should be done in partnership. So um, I wanted to um, talk about a bit of the research um, because handily there was a global report on ageism by the World Health Organization and the Human Rights Commission and the UN um, United Nations Population Fund and, and kind of economic development fund. So a big global report um, which starts off by saying age is one of the first things we notice about other people. I think that's a really mm -hmm. nice way of just framing yeah. what it is that they're discussing. Um, so this came out earlier this year, 2021. Um, it highlights that ageism starts in childhood and is reinforced over time and that it's not just um, a it's a cultural thing. Um, it's cues. It's society's kind of ways of thinking about people, but it's also internalized. Um, and then we use those stereotypes to make inferences about others and about ourselves. Um, mm. And then. The, um, the UN report also acknowledges um, the intersection of ageism with other kinds of stereotypes, prejudice and discrimination um, and how that compounds disadvantage. So there's two really, really um, interesting things I wanted to start off by highlighting. So factors that increase the risk of perpetuating ageism against older people. So ageism isn't just what you experience, it's also what you do. So um, factors that might make you more likely to be ageist against older people are being younger, male, anxious about death and less educated. So this is global, a mm. um, big piece of research. Factors that reduce the risk of perpetuating ageism against both younger and older people are having certain personality traits and also, really interesting, more intergenerational contact. Yeah. Um, and then um, in terms of being, being a target of ageism, 
um, the factors that increase, increase your risk of experiencing ageism are being older, being care dependent, having a lower healthy life expectancy in the country and working in certain professions or occupational sectors such as high tech or hospitality sector which is quite interesting, mm. um, and a risk factor for being a target of ageism against younger people. So experiencing ageism as a younger person is being female. So I just mm. think it's really, again, we have to be so careful, don't we, when you use research not to start making generalizations or assumptions or things like that. But it's useful to have that frame of thinking about the, the, the ways in which this differently impacts on different people. But also I really like that idea of not just experience, but agency. Um, so thinking about, well, am I somebody who's more likely then to be concerned about or preoccupied about age um, and draw, you know, make assumptions? Mm. And then it also gives us a chance to think about what we can do, isn't it? You know, um, if we understand that for some young people, being around older people increases their anxiety about the experience of death then actually we can think about, well, how can we talk about death well and safely in our society in a helpful way that takes away? Because I think one of the things for us in the Western world is that we do kind of sanitise death um, to a point where we do step right away from it. Um, and so it does lead to more fear because there's there's more unknowns. And, I, and so I think that this type of research can help a social worker think their way around things that they need to talk about with people, things they need to support people with possible issues that may be there. And it's about them being curious about it. And if the person goes, nah, you know, I've had all this experience and this and that, you go, okay. Mm -hmm. But it, you don't know to be curious or ask sometimes if you don't have these types of things pointed out to you. So I think it's really, really helpful. Yeah, the United Nations also in this report talk a bit about some of the impacts of ageism, which I think social workers will be really aware of um, around the impact on health and well-being and human rights. They mm. highlight um, so it restricts your ability to um, to exercise your rights. And um, they also then really helpfully highlight some strategies to combat ageism, which I think are strategies that could be either individual or collective strategies for social workers. Um, so investing in um, the strategies that are supported by the best evidence, which are policies and laws. So arguing for um, you know, rights to be really clearly set out, um, educational activities and intergenerational contact. So within that, you kind of need to think about um, how as social workers we're helping people to understand experiences at different points, different stages, um, and also how we're helping different um, people from different stages to meet together. Um, so how we're kind of helping the helping groups to to have contact with each other, have intergenerational contact, um, and that, and that for ourselves as well. Um, and then we also do have a voice around policies and laws. But the other things that they talk about in the United Nations um, is improving data and research. Again, that's something social workers can engage in with um, highlighting you know, what, what's happening, who needs social care, for example, um, their experiences and the impact of ageism. Um, but also, this is a really wonderful recommendation, build a movement to change the narrative around age and ageing. Um. 
And there's um, a lovely piece of work going on in Australia. I don't know if you've come across it, Jerry, where young children, four-year-olds, are having their daycare in a residential care facility for older people. And this is just really beautiful. And the encounters are supported by social care staff. And they're really heartwarming for both parties. You know, young people are learning about older people and what they can and can't do. They're being supported to learn new skills. Older people are reminded of all the things they know and can still do. And they learn to listen to these valuable voices and the ideas of the young. And you can see in this program that both groups are richer for the experience and the exposure. And I think for me, when we think about practice, one of the things that we can sometimes um, do in our age-conscious Western world is really separate people out by age so much that they forget how to mix and benefit from the intergenerational interactions. And this is not such a problem for cultural groups that live in extended families and have large connected communities. For nuclear families, only child families immigrants who don't have families in the same country of them, people isolated by illness or lack of access to resources, they can also end up lacking access to people of all ages and stages of life. So programs like the one I've talked about, the Australian program, can be really helpful. And so volunteer programs that link young people with older people who are isolated or young people who have life-limiting conditions and disabilities to older people who have time and space um, you know, when we think about enabling people in our society to contribute to their community, the two groups that often have time, actually, are young people who've finished education but have not yet been able to find work and the older person who's finished work but has not yet found another passion that takes up their time or doesn't have caring responsibilities. So social work programs that are community-based can start to look at providing places and spaces for these people to meet up and do things to matter to, that matter to them. So, you know, some of the community programs I was thinking of where you can sometimes see really good mixing is um, gardening in public spaces, counting bees, running food banks, visiting programs. You know, they can be perfect places for people of all ages to congregate and learn about each other. But interestingly, there's often barriers in those individual programs, isn't it? It's like they're colonised by one age group, by and, and other people then feel excluded. Mm. So for me, it's something about how as a social worker do we actually actively think about diversifying to include age as well as the other characteristics. You just made me think of a couple of things there, Joe. One is that the report that came out last year or the year before on loneliness that the Department of Health and Social Care did, it, it was in England, uh, it did identify loneliness and isolation as an issue amongst older people, but also really strongly as an issue for younger people, mm. which I think is quite often forgotten. And that was pre-pandemic. Um, and it also reminds me of when I was at my loneliest, which is when I was a, um, a student in Russia. I had this really wonderful relationship with an older woman who I used to go and visit. And she would talk to me about her experiences in the war and since in the Soviet Union. And I would clean her floor. And it was just fantastic. Um, and it's that exchange, isn't it? And, and certainly, um, so my son, um, who is having struggles with his, with his health at the moment, his mental health, he spends time gardening for someone who's 87. And they have the most lovely relationship together. And so he gets all that space and time and energy and she gets that help. But they have a genuine friendship. And I think that that's, you know, that's what we're looking for here is how can people 
because everybody, everybody, we grow during our whole life, don't we? We never stop growing until our death. We're learning and growing and changing. And we really want to feel, you want to feel useful. You want to feel valuable. You want to feel loved and connected. Yeah. And it's interdependent, isn't it? Reciprocal kind of. Yeah. Reciprocity is, I think, absolutely critical in breaking down age discrimination. It's understanding that both parties have valuable things to give each other. I had wanted to mention something um, going back to what you were saying about the idea of stages rather than ages, um, which is about how social workers can try to challenge the idea of age as a as a marker or a threshold. I mean, we do a lot of work challenging thresholds, don't we? It's one of the things that social workers are best at, I think, um, because whatever threshold you you have, there are always going to be lots and lots of individual exceptions and also potentially group exceptions. Um, and we need to think about if we've set a structure like a threshold, mm. um, how can that act as a barrier to people? And does that come yes. from cultural assumptions and you know, all kinds of things? So challenging thresholds, one of the things that's been going on recently in social work practices, challenging the threshold for safeguarding between children and adults. Um, and research and practice have done a lot of work around this in England um, and have said, this is, a, I think this is a really nice statement. It's increasingly hard to justify our current binary approach to safeguarding where childhood reaches an abrupt end and services withdraw from young adults based on arbitrary markers such as birthdays. Transitional safeguarding enables us to think about how we safeguard adolescents as they move into adulthood. Mm. And I just think that's really wonderful, um, that idea of movement with people rather than sudden yeah. um, arbitrary breaks. And this is certainly, you know, I was working in the disability field in the 80s um, and this was always part of the struggle that um, families had for their young people was this idea that when they turned a certain age, regardless of the stage that young person had reached, there was a completely different response to them than there had been yesterday. Um, and that caused, you know, distress and difficulty for those families, for the young person involved. And the other services often weren't set up to um, deal with the care in the same way. So it changed the care experience quite markedly. So, yeah, I, I think this is um, it's and, and, you know, the fact that we're still talking about it, we're still pushing for this shows that it's something we're going to have to keep talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. And that's always going to be a balance for social workers, isn't it? Because I think there's, there's some there's some honourable exceptions. There are people who go into emergency duty teams and work with the whole life course and love it. Mm -hmm. But for many of us, I would say most of us, we will become specialised around working with generally a particular age group. Mm. Um, and so it, it's that balance of recognising that expertise and the specific kind of capabilities and understanding that you need and the particular considerations of that stage, but not taking that out of the life course or the community or the kind of web of yeah. generations. And remaining curious, like, um, you know, so when I was a team manager, I, I um, managed a, an adolescent team. That's what we did. We worked only with adolescents. And what that meant was for one of my workers, she came in in a panic because one of her adolescents had had a child staying with her. 
like from someone else had come into the family. And so there was this baby and she was worried about the baby, but she said, I don't know anything about babies. I don't do babies. Um, and she was in a real panic. And what had happened was we'd narrowed her expertise so much that actually she'd perhaps lost some of her knowledge and curiosity and thinking about, you know, um, people in any other age group. And I think one of the things as a social worker is we need to be interested in the basic, the essential humanity of all people um, at any age and stage and be open to learning about, about that, even if it's not in our field. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to say, which might be a bit controversial, is to not get into an idea of a hierarchy of which kind of social work is the most specialist or the most difficult, the most complex yeah. or things like that. And I think that we, you know, we can by policy and by, mm -hmm. by law sometimes um, yeah. and by um, Funding. scarcity. Yeah. Scarcity yeah. of resources. We can sometimes find ourselves a bit pitted against each other. Um, I love having friends in social work who have different specialists. And if I got all my mates together, we could respond to anyone from like pre-birth through to, end of life fantastic um, and it's just great isn't it you need people that you can ring up and say uh this older person i'm working with has got a great grandchild <laughs> help you know yeah um yeah i think that's exactly right and for me it is just it is just about you know lifespan social work and always be wanting to be part of the whole lifespan um and wanting to build those relationships with 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 other people and so you know, some of the things that I've, I've been thinking about is how do we create um, social structures where people of all ages mix in communities and public settings rather than just relying on the family to bring together different age groups. And this is a real structural issue about public policy and how we all share places together to create the kind of societies we want. And I think now that there'll be individual social workers out there who are focused on their individual caseloads thinking, what do these type of structural responses have to do with me? But I think it starts with responding to an individual by seeing a need that's unmet and thinking out of the box and going, how could we actually think about these people and develop support programs to overcome issues like isolation, poor mental health, respite options for children with disabilities or older people with dementia? And how can we think about intergenerational support as as part of that mm. option? I think you're right. I think it's, a, it's for every individual, whichever, um, whatever opportunity we particularly have. And also that you know, building up that collective response by us all kind of being mindful of this and acting on it. Um, the two things that I wanted to say by way of reflection, the first is widening your circle. So my circle is very much skewed towards the older age groups. Mm. Most of my friends are older than me. Um, I, I have kids and teenagers that I hang out with who are my nephews and nieces, but I've got a gap. People in the 20s, I don't know, really know very much about what that's like for people. Mm. Um, and then, so that's the first thing about broadening circle. Um, and then the other thing is just going back to this initial phrase in the United Nations report, age is one of the first things we notice about other people. Noticing that we notice it, I think, is what I would want to do. Mm. And being really conscious of what then runs through my head and what 
what response I have. And I had quite similar reflections, actually, Jerry. I said, uh, how many people outside my immediate family are of a different age to me? So that's really about widening that circle. How often do I go to places where people of all different ages mix together? Or, you know, am I going to places where mostly there's people my age? Um, and I think you're right about that um, that younger generation, you know, in their 20s and that how many people do we do we know and actually how much insight do we have into that life once we move to, into a certain age ourselves? And then I thought about practice and I thought, well, in practice, what, when do I consider age as a risk factor and why? Mm. Yeah, because we can always think of it as a as a piece of information that can then be analysed to understand either risk or strength. Mm. Um, yeah, but if we're not aware of it, if it's just a subconscious thing, then perhaps we don't put enough thought into it. Mm. Was was where I was coming from. Well, this has been really interesting, Jerry. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, lots Thank to think you. about. Um, and I will speak to you again soon. Okay. Talk to you soon.